Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us and we pray as we reflect upon it and seek to understand that your spirit would give us wisdom, understanding and your spirit would transform us so that we would become more like Jesus, our Saviour and Lord. This we ask in his name. Amen. Well, if I was to ask you, what is the greatest Christmas movie of all time? What would your answer be? Some might say, Love Actually. Some might say, Miracle on 34th Street. Others might say, Home Alone. Yeah, good one. That's what I'm looking for. Die Hard. Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Uh, and in fact, uh, I, I just for those who haven't seen it, well, now's your excuse because it's Christmas and it's a Christmas movie, but I am going to spoil the plot for you. Uh, but that's okay because it was released in 1988, so I don't really feel that bad about uh, the, the spoilers I'm about to release. But if you're not familiar or it's been a while since you watched the greatest Christmas movie of all time, I'm assuming it's a yearly event for most of us. Um, John McClane, a.k.a. Bruce Willis, is a sort of washed-out uh, detective or police officer of some kind, and he uh, comes to visit his wife who works in a big fancy tower. Uh, it's confusing, sometimes you think she's on a plane or a tower because you get the, the, the movies confused because Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2 are exactly the same. But anyway, I, I digress. Uh, Die Hard 1, they're in a tower, it's Christmas Eve, uh, they're having a, a work party and then a German terrorist by the name of Hans Gruber takes everyone hostage. Uh, John McClane finds himself uh, not taken hostage and he kind of works from inside the tower to win everyone's freedom. Now, while he's doing that, uh, the, his wife and her colleagues uh, are, are under the hostage-taker's control. One of them tries to uh, save himself and save his colleagues, but uh, he ends up getting killed. Um, and, uh, you know, things are not looking good for everyone, but in the end, McLean saves the day. Now, why, why start with Die Hard uh, and the plot of this movie? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that when terrorists take over your work Christmas party, that you need someone to save you that you find yourself in a totally helpless situation. And of course, if Die Hard wasn't already the greatest Christmas movie of all time, now we see it actually preaches the gospel uh, because it teaches us that everyone needs a saviour. <laughs> and of course, that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 61. So let's have a little look uh, at the context. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61, which Ruth read for us today, uh, is really the centrepiece of the final 10 chapters of Isaiah, or 10 or 11 chapters of Isaiah, from uh, chapter 55 through to the end of the book in chapter 66. And, and this final section is talking about what it's going to be like when this, this servant, the Messiah, the Anointed One, comes in all his fullness. And the big idea that we've seen develop up to this point and is uh, kind of brought to fruition is that God's people need to live according to God's righteous standards, but God's people are completely and totally uh, unable to do so and have failed in 
uh, to live up to the standard to which they were required to. And because of that, they need God's help, they need God's salvation. And so we read in places like Isaiah 59 verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. God is going to send someone to save those who realise that they are stuffed, that they can't live up to the standards that God requires and that they need someone's help. They need the Messiah's help, the Anointed One's help. And right before uh, our chapter today in chapter 61, we have chapter 60, which talks about how when this happens, God's going to move people from darkness to light. He's going to move the city of God, Zion, from, from darkness to light, Verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Uh, chapter 60 talks about the many blessings of uh, God that will come when he brings his salvation to those in need of it and those who uh, with repentant hearts are ready to receive it. And then we get to our chapter today, chapter 61, which many believe, and I think they're right, is the servant uh, from Isaiah, speaking about his role in bringing about salvation and, 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 and putting flesh on some of the blessings that come with the, the, the Messiah who brings salvation. Now, if we had a lot more time, and I may even do this some point next year or, uh, or in the future, I won't tie myself to next year, in the future, uh, talk about the, the character of the servant in Isaiah, because it's He's a key figure who uh, sort of develops in, uh, in, in the book uh, and throughout Isaiah, uh, in the second half of the book, uh, which is with the hopeful part of the book, you remember last week I talked about the first half to 30, chapter 39, that's like judgment's coming and then from chapter 40 we get, but God will save us and when God's saving us, it seems like the servant is the one who's going to bring the salvation and there are a number of what are called servant songs. So uh, let me encourage you to go home and have a, have a little read. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4, Isaiah 49 verse 1 to 6, Isaiah 50 verses 4 to 9. You might not be familiar with those three but there's a fourth one which you probably will be familiar with, Isaiah 52 verses 13 to 53 verse 12. Um, if you, you don't know uh, that one, go home and read Isaiah 53 and you will go, oh, I remember that from Easter. Because uh, it, it, it's, the, it's the chapter that people often go to in Easter because it just so, seems to so clearly describe the ministry of Jesus. So these are these songs that talk about the work of the, the servant, this key figure in the book of Isaiah who's bringing salvation and many scholars, and I think they're right, think that what we have here in Isaiah 61 is like a fifth servant song, though this time uh, it's the servant himself speaking of, the word, speaking of his work uh, and his role in bringing salvation. And what we see throughout these servant songs and when the servant speaks himself is we have this messianic figure who does what Israel couldn't do, who represents God to the world and brings God's salvation. You see, that was the job that was kind of given to the people of God, to Israel. 
Go and uh, come, I I will make you my people, and then you're meant to be a a, a light that shines brightly to the nations. And through you, uh, they're meant to see that I'm God. But of course, what actually happened was the people of God rebelled and became like the nations, and so that's why the judgment comes and they end up in exile. But this servant will do the job that Israel could never do, representing God perfectly to the world, being the light that shines in the world, being the one that brings God's salvation to the world. And so we have, in the immediate context, as I said, the, 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 the coming of God's salvation, the, 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 the coming of light to the darkness, and now we have the servant, the one who brings it, speaking of his role. And so let's have a little bit of a look about what he says. Firstly, we see in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 61 that uh, he will preach the good news. And that news is uh, news that we read in verses 1 to 3 uh, come, is good news to the poor, it binds up the brokenhearted, it, it, it is news of freedom, it's news of release from darkness, it's news of blessing, but also judgment for those who don't get on board, and it's news that brings salvation. And we note there in that last uh, part there, verse 3, that it is, it, is, it is the servant's work that makes Zion righteous. It is the servant's work that turns their mourning into praise. It's the servant's work that takes them from despair to righteousness. He's the one who does it. He's the one who brings salvation. But not only does he, 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 he announce this good news, but through it, we read, verse 4, comes restoration. Uh, through it uh, will the world, the nations be included, foreigners will be included, we see in verse 5. Verse 6, the people will be blessed and they will minister to the nations. So as the, the Saviour comes, the Messiah, the servant comes and does what they couldn't do and they're caught up in this salvation and they receive the blessings, they are then included in uh, bringing blessing to the nations and their shame and disgrace will be turned to riches and everlasting joy in verse 7. This is good news indeed. You remember this is a people who are are facing exile or in exile as they hear this good news. Then we see the servant move to talking about God's faithfulness and his covenant with his people in verses 8 and 9. We see that God is a God who loves justice who hates robbery and wrongdoing and therefore will be faithful and give Israel an everlasting covenant. Again, the salvation coming not because of the people and their earning of it, but because of God's faithfulness. And again, we see the extending of this covenant to the nations. This is a salvation not just for Israel, not just for the people of God, but for everyone. And so when this comes, this good news of, of, of uh, binding up, of moving from dar- darkness to light, of blessing, of salvation, of restoration, uh, of, of God's faithfulness, of, of, of the flowing of this blessing to the nations, there will be a joyous response we see in verses 10 and 11 from both the servant but also those who receive the blessing. The servant in verse 10 who rejoices in his role in bringing about God's salvation 
and uh, uh, the joy we can all have in knowing that this is a true and certain thing that will happen. As surely as God makes the grass grow, we read in verse 11, so he will make his righteousness and praise grow throughout the world through the work of the servant. This is a sure thing, the servant says. This is going to happen. God's salvation is going to come. God's blessing is going to come. People are going to move from darkness and judgment and death to life and light and blessing. Well, okay. But do we know any more about when this is going to happen and and who this is going to be? And of course, uh, we do know more. It's a good story for the people who heard it first, but for us now, it's an even greater story. Because Isaiah 61, we we know, is actually used by Jesus to describe his own ministry. When we read Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 4, we read first of Jesus uh, being driven into the wilderness. And there he finds himself tempted by Satan. And uh, he finds himself facing temptation after temptation. And each time he says, No, Satan. And he uses the word of God and he remains faithful to God. And of course, what's going on there is is a microcosm of the Old Testament. There we have God's person facing temptation and saying no, remaining faithful to God, unlike the people of Israel. And as he does that, and as he successfully uh, uh, defeats temptation in the wilderness, he goes from the wilderness into the synagogue in Nazareth, and uh, we read, he opens up Isaiah 61, uh, in verses uh, 16 to 19 of chapter 4, uh, and he, he sits down and he reads this chapter, Isaiah 61. And then let me read to you what happens as he finishes reading from Isaiah, verse 20 of Luke chapter 4. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes in everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture is fulfilled. This promise of God, these words of his servant, today are fulfilled. That is, I am the servant. I am the servant from Isaiah, I am the promised Messiah, I am the anointed one who will bring God's salvation to you, I'm the one you've been waiting for. As we prepare on Friday to remember the birth of our Saviour on Christmas, we're reminded, aren't we, of just how good this day is, the birth of our Saviour. At Christmas, the one who will bring salvation, the Messiah, he has come. The one who fulfills the law and the prophets has come. He comes to bring salvation. So, how should we respond to Isaiah 61 today? This side of the coming of our Messiah. Well, the first thing I think is we ought to be encouraged by uh, Isaiah 61 and and what we read of Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, to trust God's promises. 
this side of Christmas, this side of the coming of the Messiah, this side of Jesus going into the wilderness and coming into the temple and, and announcing the fulfilment of this prophecy and then going on to the cross and dying for our sins and rising again victorious and sending His Spirit. This side of the plan of God's salvation having worked itself out means that when we read God promise things, we can trust it because we can see how He's already fulfilled His promises. And so, uh, though He only has partially fulfilled some, and though He's promised more to us in the future, we don't need to be unsure about whether these things are going to turn out. When God says that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, we can be confident in that promise. When God says that there's a a better hope for us, a a better world for us uh, in the new heavens and the new earth and that we get there by faith, we can be confident in that because God fulfills His promises. The Old Testament teaches us that. Isaiah 61 teaches us that. When Jesus says that He will return, we can have confidence in that because God is totally trustworthy. If He's fulfilled His promises once... He will fulfill them again. So trust God's promises. Build your life on them. For He is totally trustworthy. The next thing I think we should do is take the rebuke and the reminder that we see here in Isaiah to stop striving for our own salvation. You see, trying to get things done ourselves is unachievable. The Israelites couldn't do it and you cannot do it either. Uh, Christmas is a great time for people to kind of hedge their bets. So, uh, you know, I love Christmas. I love how many people turn up to our services. I love being able to bless the community uh, and worship God together with them. But of course, a lot, I think a lot of what's going on for some people is they're hedging their bets. They're like, well, I better put a little bit of money in the Jesus box by turning up on Christmas or Easter in the hope that should things kind of plan out the way that God says they will, I'll, I'll be okay because at least I went to church on Christmas or Easter, which is going to, on balance, put me above some other people. But it's not just people who come on Christmas and Easter, it's you and me too who come most weeks to church. Goodness, I go at least twice a week. We can easily, accidentally, seek to earn our salvation. Seek to turn things that we ought to do out of a a response to God's love and mercy into a work that we think is somehow earning ourselves God's salvation. but there's this massive book of the Bible, a massive part of the Bible called the Old Testament, and it teaches us that that is a futile task. Working for your own salvation will not work. It will end in exile and darkness. But that big part of the book also tells us that there's a solution. God is going to send someone, and He has sent someone, who will do the work that you cannot do. 
And so instead of working for your salvation this Christmas, stop, rest from that labour and receive the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation that comes through the servant, the servant that we know to be Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the one who brings salvation to this world through repentance and faith. So trust God's promises. And he promises that if you put to death your own work and your own self and instead turn to him, he will bring you salvation. You will get what you're striving for. And having done that, having received the gift, partner with Jesus in his mission. I imagine uh, every Christmas you got together with your family and there was some uh, person there who always got given gifts but never gave any. Uh, uh, we'll just call him Uncle, Uncle Bob, for lack of a better word. But imagine, every year the family gathers around the Christmas tree, uh, and I, I don't know how it works in your house, but in my house, uh, the kids, they go to the tree, they get the presents, and they, we kind of tell them who to take it to, so they'll take it over to Nana or Pop or Dad or whatever, uh, and this is kind of... Well, uh, imagine if Uncle Bob's there every Christmas, and he keeps getting presents. He's getting, you know, Amity, I mean, I'm now at my house, Amity's bringing him present after present because we've all bought him one, but Uncle Bob, this is not a true story, by the way, uh, <laughs> no one gets one from Uncle Bob. And sort of like, maybe the first year, that'd be a bit awkward, and then the second year, you're like, really, maybe I should mention this, and then by the fourth year, you're like, why do we even invite Uncle Bob? That awkward uncle who no one would end up liking and who's proved himself to be extremely selfish is the kind of person we can be if we receive the gift of salvation through faith in Christ and then stop there and do nothing with that gift. We can be like Uncle Bob if we receive the gift of salvation without sharing it, without doing something to commend this beautiful gift to others, to share this gift with others, because it's not ours to, keep, to, to receive and keep, but it's ours to receive and share. Like imagine if at Christmas time someone gives you an amazing bottle of wine or an amazing array of chocolates... Now, there's some joy in waiting till everyone leaves and sitting down in front of Die Hard <laughs> and eating the Christmas chocolates or drinking the Christ this beautiful wine all by yourself. But there's a greater joy, isn't there, in receiving the gift and sharing it with those you love. Seeing the joy on their faces as they taste this wine that you too are enjoying, as they eat these chocolates that you too are enjoying, as you laugh and, and, and smile and rejoice in this wonderful gift you've been given together. There's great joy in sharing those sorts of things. There's even greater joy to be had in sharing the gospel, the good news 
of salvation. And so when we trust God and His promises, that He'll be with us always, uh, His last words to His disciples in Matthew 28, go and make disciples uh, because all, all, sorry, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples and I will be with you. We have His authority, His power and His presence as we seek to share the gift of salvation that we've been given. Trust God's promises, that He is with us, that we do share in His authority. Receive the gift of salvation and partner with Jesus in bringing the good news of salvation to our world. I'd love for you this week, as you head into Christmas, to spend some time simply praying and asking God for the opportunity to share what Christmas means to you at the heart of hearts, the gift of salvation with someone whom you love, whom you care deeply for, so that you might receive the joy of sharing the greatest gift of all. Who's that person going to be? And let me leave you with a moment of silence before Graham comes to pray, to pray now for them and the chance to share the gift of salvation.